Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. This is another special edition of Fraud Eat Strategy in which we explore a major case. And arguably, there is no more major a case in modern history than the Ponzi scheme perpetrated against thousands of victims for more than three decades by the notorious Bernie Madoff. Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities was founded in 1960 and engaged in three primary types of business, market making, proprietary trading, and investment advisory services. Madoff Securities was a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. As a broker-dealer, Madoff Securities was a member of the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, SIPC, which is a nonprofit corporation established to protect investors in the event a broker-dealer fails. On December 11, 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested by the FBI in his Manhattan home and was criminally charged with a multi-million dollar securities fraud scheme. Shortly thereafter, SIPC filed an application in the district court alleging Madoff Securities was not able to meet its obligations to securities customers as they came due, and its customers needed the protection afforded by SIPA. In response, the court entered a protective decree which appointed Irving Picard as trustee for the liquidation and appointed Baker Hostetler as counsel to the trustee. And so began the most comprehensive and successful financial investigation and asset search in history. The work of the trustee and Baker Hostetler has continued ever since. The numbers associated with their work is truly staggering. To date, the trustee has recovered a combined total of $14.402 billion in settlements and recoveries and has distributed $13.32 billion to victims. This recovery amounts to $0.75 cents on the dollar of the approximately $20 billion of principal that was lost in the Madoff Ponzi scheme in total. Recovering this high a percentage of the losses in a Ponzi scheme is highly unusual in bankruptcy and white-collar crime cases and was never anticipated by most onlookers at the outset of the investigation. Another amazing fact is that 100% of the funds recovered are earmarked for the victims. Before getting into the recovery effort, there's another important story to be told. In 2000, Harry Markopoulos was working at a derivatives asset management firm in Boston where he was asked to analyze Madoff's money-making methods. His analysis led him and other members of the team to conclude that Madoff Securities was being operated as a Ponzi scheme. He prepared an eight-page analysis listing red flags and mathematical proof of the scheme and sent it to the SEC's regional Boston office. His analysis included 29 red flags in support of his argument why Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme. Madoff told investors that he would put their investments into a split-strike conversion strategy. He described it as a diversified basket of numerous blue-chip stocks that outwardly appeared to be safe bets, which were then hedged stock market index put and call options, which would protect them in the event of a significant market decline. The complexity of the strategy worked to perpetuate the fraud. But if I had to pick the most important red flag, it would be that Madoff's purported options trading size was between 7 and 65 times the size of the actual market for those derivative instruments at various points in time. Of all the red flags that Markopoulos raised, the most stunning one was this. So joining us today is Baker Hostetler partner, Shauna Brown. For the past 12 years, 
Shauna has worked on the unprecedented global recovery effort following the collapse of Madoff Investment Securities. Since the first day following the appointment of Irving Picard as trustee, Shauna has been the principal deputy to Picard and his chief counsel, David Sheehan. And together, they've unraveled one of the largest financial frauds in U.S. history. Shauna has worked on every aspect of the Madoff engagement, spearheading the negotiation of billion-dollar settlements, leading trial and appellate teams in the litigation of some of the most critical matters facing the bankruptcy bar in generations, chasing assets across the globe, and distributing over $14 billion of recovered assets to Madoff's victims, an unparalleled amount that far exceeds even the most optimistic projections made when the fraud was first discovered in 2008. Welcome, Shauna, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Scott. Happy to be here. So I've really been looking forward to this conversation, Shauna, and you've been working on this since you were a third-year associate, 12-plus years ago. During the initial days and weeks of the investigation, I think many people assumed that the fraud came about as a result of trading losses and the need to conceal them or something else that was negatively impacting the company. At what point did the team realize that none of the investors' money had been invested in securities? So the first couple of days of any liquidation following the collapse of a broker are always very chaotic, especially when you add in the criminal component, you have the SEC. So we got on site very quickly after Irving's appointment. And one of the first things we did was look to see what the broker owed its customers. And in this case, we found Mr. Madoff said that he owed his customers $65 billion worth of assets. So we immediately go to look at the bank accounts, look at all the securities positions that he had opened in the market, expecting to find you know billions of dollars of securities. Our first call to the DTC, which is the Clearing Corporation for Securities, we found out that he had $12 million. And that was our first inkling that um, Mr. Madoff was running a fraud of very epic proportions. So we continued running down our list. And in the bank accounts, uh, we were hoping to find billions of dollars there where maybe he had liquidated the securities. And once again, he had, I think he had about $240 million in the bank account that was associated with the investment advisory business where he was running the fraud. And for the market making desk, he had about $300 million. So when we got there, he had maybe $500 million at the firm on assets owed to his customers of $65 billion. It didn't take us too long to figure out there was a significant shortfall here that we were going to be dealing with. That's pretty amazing. So many people struggle to understand the different roles of the Department of Justice and the FBI, the SEC, SIPC, the SIPA trustee in this case. I mean, I think a particular interest is how the criminal and civil asset forfeiture cases being brought by the FBI and the DOJ dovetailed with the trustee's own efforts to recoup money for victims. How did that work? And, and were there any challenges along the way? So you're right. There's a lot of overlapping jurisdiction, which I think is true when you have a criminal and a civil component to a case. And I think what makes this case kind of interesting and a little bit different from other cases is, you know, Mr. Madoff confessed to his sons. So this isn't a case that the DOJ built from the ground up with informants or wiretaps. It was sort of handed to them on their doorstep. They weren't expecting this. And, you know, the SEC came in and filed their actions. SIPC filed its protective decree. The trustee was appointed. There's a lot of things going on. But I think one of the things that really set the tone for this case that kind of charted us on a different path was, I don't think the, the Department of Justice was expecting the blowback that they got when Mr. Madoff was released on bail. And I think from that moment, they were a little bit on their heels. And I think it set them on a path where they wanted to be as aggressive as possible for their office and for the victims of Mr. Madoff's fraud. And the way they thought they could best achieve that was through the forfeiture laws. 
you know, forfeiture is an incredibly strong tool for the Department of Justice. It's different than they can forfeit the assets if they can show it's the proceeds of a crime. And here, it's pretty obvious all the money that he had were proceeds of securities fraud. But one of the things we tried to impress upon the DOJ in the early days, and it, I think it worked to some extent, especially as we got more into a working relationship, is that one of the benefits of a SIPA case, and this is unlike an SEC receivership, it's unlike a traditional bankruptcy, is you have the Securities Investor Protection Corporation and paying all the administrative expenses. What we try to say is it makes sense for the trustee to forfeit Mr. Madoff's assets, to collect those assets, liquidate them, and then we can distribute them. Because SIPIC is paying for things like real estate agents, art appraisers. Mr. Madoff had a, a boat in France. We could pay for the docking fees until the boat could be sold. All of that stuff, we could liquidate, pay for the administrative expenses, and 100% of the proceeds of those sales of those assets would go back to the customers, where the government doesn't have that ability. They, of course, need to pay the professionals that they retain to assist them once they forfeit these properties. But I think that, you know, the early days of the case, I think, really, you know, set them, they wanted to pursue forfeiture and have their own path that was separate and apart from the trustee. But in the end, I do think, particularly as we got closer to the criminal case and over the years, we've managed to work together, I think, and achieve great recoveries for all of Mr. Madoff's victims. That's an interesting point you make. So I was an asset forfeiture guy when I was in the FBI, and we had certain rules that we went by, and, and some of it was try not to seize things that the cost of just retaining them you know, outstrip the value that we, the government expects to realize. And the other one was don't seize anything that needs to be fed and cared for because the government isn't particularly good at caring for things like livestock or thoroughbred horses. They, the, uh, the value drops down to zero when they're not taken care of properly. It must have been appealing to the government that you guys were going to take that all off their hands. So what are some of the factors that enabled the trustee to have so much success in recovering funds for the victims in this case when the average Ponzi scheme return is between five and 10 cents on the dollar? I think first and foremost, as I mentioned before, we had the backing of SIPC, which does make this type of bankruptcy, this type of liquidation proceeding really unique in the sense that we're very well funded. And we have the ability to really give back every single cent that we recover goes back to the victim. So none of our expenses are taken off the top. And we were able to build a really strong team of professionals, including your colleagues at FTI, who we've worked very closely with over the years. And with that team, we were really able to dig very deep into Mr. Madoff's fraud, reconstruct the books and records, reconstruct the fraud, and put together these incredibly strong complaints. Before we filed the complaints in the sort of investigation period, as we'll you know, probably talk about more today, you know, people saw the strength of our claims, the amount of work that we had done to reconstruct everything that Mr. Madoff had done and to support our claims. And people came to us because they wanted to settle. And as soon as we started getting some of the settlements in, the financial considerations became very much in our favor in the sense that rather than sit on the sidelines, and get nothing from the trustee. Instead, the trustee is recovering all these assets. You can return you know, the amounts that you owe to the estate, and you can actually get paid out on your claims. There was a turning point where the financial considerations just became too great, especially some of the financial institutions, to really sit on the sidelines and see a recovery of nothing. When in fact, as we've now seen, you can get recoveries that far exceed any other type of liquidation proceeding. So to your point, the recoveries and settlements in this case are, are really eye-popping. But there are some other amazing statistics, too. 
I mean, for example, how many cases have been litigated and how many settlements have been entered into so far? So we brought initially about a thousand actions before the statutory bar date in 2010. And then following that, we brought some subsequent transfer actions, probably about another hundred. So in total, we have 1,100 actions that we brought relating to Mr. Madoff's fraud. And to date, we've resolved or settled almost 900 of them. So a large proportion of them have been settled. And those settlements have resulted in recoveries, as you mentioned in the intro, of over $14 billion. So what about some other statistics that'll help illustrate the volume of information and really the scale of this investigation and the volume of data that had to be analyzed? Are there statistics for, for example, the number and volume of documents that were reviewed, the boxes of manual records that were seized, the number of witnesses interviewed and deposed? I think what's really interesting about this fraud is Mr. Madoff and his business, they were a bit of pack rats. You know, this is a business that's been around since the 1960s. And of course, there are regulations about traders and the records at financial institutions, the records they need to keep. But I can assure you that Mr. Madoff's record retention far exceeded any policy that was imposed upon him. (laughs) So we got there in the early days and Mr. Madoff's business had three floors of the Lipstick Building, 17th, 18th, and 19th floors. The 17th floor is where the fraud occurred, and 18th and 19th floor were for the trading desks that actually did engage in real trading. And so we had all of the media on those three floors, all of the computers, all of the documents, you know, all of those documents. And then we found out there was a basement, and the basement was also completely full of boxes. He had two warehouses, one in Queens and another like recovery center, also completely full of boxes. So in total, we ended up with about 10,000 boxes of paper documents, which might not sound like that much, but then you have to consider that Mr. Meaf also had thousands and thousands of reels of microfiche and microfilm. And, you know, I went to elementary school in the 80s and actually did learn how to do research in probably fifth grade on microfiche and microfilm. But I doubt that any other lawyers that are younger than me have any idea what those things are or what it costs to restore those, those types of media. But he saved almost every single piece of paper, it seems like. So we have 10,000 boxes of paper documents. We have all the microfiche, all the microfilm, all the electronic documents. So we have over four terabytes of information in the trustees' electronic data rooms. And then throughout the litigation, we've gotten over 5 million documents from different parties, either through the claims process or the litigation that we're in. Today, we've taken about 400 depositions, which actually isn't as much as you would think. And that's partly because we're still in the 200 cases that remain, we're still at a pre-discovery stage. We have not gone into discovery in 99% of those cases. And that's because of various issues have gone up on appeal, various rulings. We have one appeal currently pending at the Second Circuit, and that's about the standard of good faith if you're a transferee in a bankruptcy. And depending on how that ruling comes out, assume it comes back in the trustee's favor, Those cases are going to proceed to discovery for the first time in maybe 2021 or 2022. That's 14 years after the case was filed. Those cases are going to go into discovery. So once those cases go, we'll expect that deposition number to go shooting up. But for now, 400 depositions. I mean, those are some really amazing statistics and numbers. Wow. Gives you a sense of the, the level of effort. So Irving Picard and Dave Sheehan have been trustee and chief counsel for the length of the trusteeship, and both are elder statesmen in the legal community. And yet, 
they did some pretty progressive things in terms of making the Madoff Recovery Initiative a platform for inclusion. What is it that they did that was particularly noteworthy? I think what's really interesting, as you know, they are elder statesmen. I don't think they would take any umbrage at being called that. Guys who have been around a long time and you know, in the course of their careers, the legal profession has changed a lot. And I think people are really focusing on diversity and having different people, especially when you go to court and speaking roles at court. This has been discussed extensively throughout the bar. You know, there's new judges, different judges that have new rules about you know, giving different people speaking opportunities. So it shouldn't just be the sort of senior male partner at large law firms who are always first chair. And I think what Dave and Irving have done with the team is they've really empowered women and diverse attorneys to have these leading roles. And I don't know if you're familiar with the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. Have you discussed that at all? No. A mentor is someone that you can go to for advice. Maybe they don't work directly in your department or, you know, but you can sort of go to them with a question and say, I've got this problem. What do I do? A sponsor is somebody who's going to fight for you, who's going to say, no, I want to put you in front of a client. No, I want you to take that deposition. I want you to be in court. I want you to be the lead person at the firm on these different issues. And I think Dave and Irving really embraced the sponsorship mentality as opposed to just being mentors. So they push for people to be in these high profile roles. And that's what gives people the experience, the credibility to go out there and continue to do that. And that's how you build a really diverse team. So the one example that obviously is very meaningful to me personally is I had been working on this case since I was a third year associate. I made partner and I actually got pregnant and I was during my pregnancy working on this issue that was, you know, getting kind of hot. And I got back from maternity leave and it was an issue that was going to go to trial. It was the first of the trustees cases to go to trial. And David Irving made me the lead trial counsel after getting back from maternity leave, which was just so incredible to have this opportunity. The first case, you know, lots of very high profile, very exciting. And then in addition to me, we had an all-female team, which is incredibly rare. I don't think there's that many trial teams that are all women. And on the trustees' side in total, so we had two professionals from FGI who served as our expert witnesses at the trial, Lisa Kalura and Matt Greenblatt. And so with Lisa, obviously, Lisa is a woman as well. So I think Matt was, I think, the only person on the trustee side that was not a woman. And I think that's just really remarkable that for the first trial, you know, we had this really, really diverse team and we won and it's been sustained on appeal. So they made the right choice. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So when you and I were first talking about planning this episode, some point you remarked that there'll never be another Ponzi scheme like Madoff. Uh, Why is that? So I think it's for a couple of different reasons. I mean, listen, you and I both know that there's always going to be creative people that are going to engage in fraud. So times will adapt. People will shift. I keep waiting. I don't know about you, but I keep on waiting for the first, you know, sort of crypto securities fraud. And I feel like there's so much of that going on right now. I'm interested to see how that all develops. But I think Madoff's fraud is really interesting because it's from such a specific time and place. So Madoff had paper statements, which is part of how he perpetrated his fraud for so long. I mean, the fraud, even though he sort of dressed it up, is quite simple. He you know, looked at already published trading data, saw what trades were profitable, what trades you know won, and then had what they called the key punch operators type it into the computer and print out a statement and send it to you. And you know you didn't get your statements in real time, so you couldn't check it against the marketplace. And this was true not just for the sort of mom and pop investors, of which there were 
thousands of those people, but true for financial institutions, you know, big, big companies that were getting paper statements even in 2006, 2007, 2008. And I think now, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have to check all my accounts online. The ability to be able to check things in real time, it doesn't mean that there's not fraud that's going to take place, but the paper statements I think is huge. And that's such a relic of a certain era. You know, that would not be acceptable at this point. And then I think too, I'm hopeful that people are more educated about some of the risks. So Madoff was self-custodying. He had all the securities at his, his own shop. And I would think that hopeful that most investors now would recognize that that's not okay for any, any type of broker. I'm interested to see what the next fraud develops. But I think those two factors alone are what kind of sets made up apart and really put him in this time period that has since passed. It's funny, just doing the work that we both do. I think that sort of the end of the paper document has been foretold many times, but yet still to this day, get into a big, complex financial crime. And, you know, the client you know, naturally wants to avail themselves of the efficiencies of using data analytics. And, you know, an artificial intelligence and, and the various things that can drive efficiencies in terms of analysis, you know, and then at some point someone points to a mini storage unit that has hundreds of bankers boxes of paper records. And so we, I don't think we're there yet, but certainly that's more now the exception than it had been the rule. So Madoff curated this fraud over the course of nearly 50 years and by all accounts seems pretty unrepentant. You met with him twice and you deposed him. What stood out about those meetings with him? It's always, I think, very humbling to see someone in the orange jumpsuit in these federal prisons. So I think that setting alone kind of sets the stage. But what I thought was really interesting about it is I found him kind of unimpressive. He had this reputation. And that's what we've heard about for so long when we were doing this investigation, that you know he was sort of this Wizard of Oz figure. And he had the black box and he didn't discuss it with anybody, but he was this whiz kid and he, he was just this incredible genius and when I met with him I don't know if it was just his he's from a certain time and place although I would know I don't think he's any different age than David Irving you know his sort of like a little bit of like a general misogyny where he was sort of talking to me like well you wouldn't understand these concepts because they're so difficult and the one that he kept coming back to that I thought was so funny was a continuous net settlement and listen I'm not I'm not a trader, but I think the words themselves aren't that difficult to really figure out what he was talking about. But he kept repeating it to me and explaining it to me as though like there was no way I could possibly get it. So then we moved to his strategy, and he's telling me about you know the complex split strike conversion strategy. And really, the strategy is pretty simple, right? I mean, you're buying options and you're hedging it. Um, it's a pretty conservative strategy. You're not going to win a lot using the strategy, but it also you know takes away some of the, the potential for downside. So he's walking through the strategy and he's going through it all. And the way he was talking about it, you could tell that he's very invested in it as though like, you know, it's this brilliant strategy. And, you know, this is how you do it in the marketplace. And we had to stop him and say, but you didn't do that. You know, none of that ever happened. And he said, would have, you know, which I thought was just so interesting. It just shows you his mindset, which is he had a brilliant strategy. It doesn't matter that he didn't do it. It doesn't matter that, you know, what he called it was, this is the other funny thing I, I found. He kept referring it to it as a books and records violation, which I guess, you know, when you're not buying securities and sending out statements, I guess it's technically a books and records violation. It might also be a great number of crimes and a horrible, horrible thing to do to your investors. But, you know, Scott, I think we're just going to call it a books and records violation. <laughs> That's funny. So 
Madoff Securities took in billions and billions of dollars of supposed investments and generated fabricated account statements, as you mentioned earlier, for each customer every month. What did that operation look like and how many people were involved? And also, when did that part of the operation first come to light? He managed to keep the two businesses pretty separate in some ways. They were separated physically. So the market-making and proprietary trading desks were on the 18th and 19th floor. Those businesses had about 180 employees. And like I said, based on our investigation, there was fraud going on there too. And they were part and parcel of the Ponzi scheme. So I don't want to suggest that it's a legitimate business and everything was hunky-dory on those two floors, but they were certainly purchasing securities and selling securities. So you know, that's a big step up from what was going on on the 17th floor. The 17th floor had about 20 employees. And I think you would probably know this from your background. You know, a lot of these people were not very sophisticated people. They didn't have experience in the securities industry. A lot of them were hired when they were very young, 18, 19, 20. They stayed with Mr. Madoff the whole time. And, you know, according to them, they thought this was how you did it. They thought you just put securities on a statement and mailed it out, and that was good enough. So he had this sort of two totally different types of people, different types of employees. They were, you know, kept separate from one another. And I like to think about the 17-4. I mean, the way I viewed it, really, when you get down to it, because we've done these extensive investigation, you know, FTI has been with us every step of the way, and there's so much to unravel. There's so many documents, there's so many years of fraud to dig into. But really, the way I think about it is he basically had a sophisticated printing operation. He printed statements. That's literally all he did. All the work that went on in 17-4 was to try to figure out what do we put on the statements? to make it look, I guess, you know, even facially plausible. And that's really, that was the business. You know, how do we print these statements? That's it. So we got so much great content from our conversation with Shauna Brown. We decided to break it into two episodes. And this concludes part one of Bernie's Billions. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode where we'll continue our conversation with Baker Hostetler, Shauna Brown on the incredible Madoff Recovery Initiative. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about in a future episode, email us at fraudedstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>